Amen. He is our breakthrough. And, and that line that says, you're making all things new, and that's really cool, but this part, it's what you always do. It's what you always do. God wants to do that. I've known Jimmy Ennis since 1989. Met him in a bookstore in Plattsburgh, New York, when we were both exceptionally younger pastors. A lot of, a lot of titles and names Jimmy has. Um, Jimmy is a counselor. He's a trained counselor. He's a certified spiritual director. He's an ordained uh, elder in the Church of Nazarene. He's a pastor. He's all those things. But the, the thing about Jimmy that I've, I love and I've always loved, and I've watched this now over 30 years, I've watched Jimmy, as very few I know, become a friend of God. He is God's friend. And God is his friend. And out of his friendship with God, God pours grace upon so many, including this pastor. So I'm, I'm just so thrilled to have my friend Jimmy Ennis here. Jimmy, come share with us. Let's welcome him today. Good morning. Thank you. It's really an honor to be here. Several months ago, last spring, just after Easter actually, I, uh, I went through one of the hardest things that I've ever gone through in my adult life. And I just needed to go somewhere. I needed to hear from God and sit in his presence. And so on a Sunday morning, my wife and I came here. I really needed to hear Brother Jeff preach. And I'm so glad I did. I was greeted warmly. And everything from the very beginning of the service to the very end, every song we sang, every scripture read, and everything in that sermon that felt like it was just for me, uh, really did start a healing process in me. And I remember going to the altar that morning when the invitation was given, and I went in the first service just to give God thanks because I remembered I, I had been away from the Church of the Nazarene serving in another uh, place for 12 years, and, and what I really missed uh, so much was the tradition of, of calling people to the altar and for people feeling free to come and just to kind of move toward God, moving your soul toward God. And it was just so wonderful. As soon as that altar call was given, not even an altar call, just an invitation to pray, um, I just really felt like I was home. And it's been now, um, I'm in a very different place now, and it's, uh, there'll always be some things to work with and deal with, but God has really done a great work. And I think of 17 years of serving for Jeff and Kathleen here and your faithfulness to this congregation. And, and as a pastor, I know that he holds all of your stories in his heart. And that really is something very, very special to know that there's a pastor, a shepherd, who can hold our story because I know he holds mine in his heart. And you want to be able to share your story with someone who can do that. And so thank you 
Thank you both for just serving God so wonderfully and, and uh, for ministering to me. This morning, I, I do want to talk about praying to know God better in, in two ways that, in a sense, I want to pray that I could know God better, and yet I realize I'll never know God better unless I pray. And so their sense of, of prayer is how I get to know God better, just by the very asking of it. And I think of the Apostle Paul, a great pastor and shepherd himself. He actually started the church in Ephesus, from which we're going to read this morning. And he, this is the only letter that he, that he writes that he's not writing out of a response to either a doctrinal or behavioral crisis in the church. There's really nothing going on that's, that's in crisis, that's really problematic, but he writes this letter and it is so full of, of wisdom and it is so encouraging. And, and in, he opens the book by really talking about extolling all the virtues of salvation itself and he says, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And it's been said that Jesus is the promise of the Old Testament, but the Holy Spirit is the promise of the New Testament. And having said that, he then turns and says, for this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, because there, there were others who came to the Lord afterwards that he never knew, even though he planted the church, and your love for all God's people. I have never stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So we learn so much from Paul, uh, just reading his letters we learn so much about what it means to be in Christ. But one of the things I learned from Paul is, is how to pray. I often think that I want to pray like Paul when I grow up, you know, because, and, and, and I don't mean to say that we should ever compare ourselves with someone else and, and that we should be self-conscious of our prayers. Uh, we, can, we can often feel like we, we, we have a need to evaluate our prayers but I know that our prayers, they're one thing that should never be evaluated to see how I did or I didn't pray well or I'm not praying well. But if you're talking to God, you're doing just great. And that's what God wants is just for you to be talking to him, relating to him, because that is how you, you just can't have a meaningful relationship without conversation. It's required. It's got to be. You connect that way. And when we pray... We're connecting with God. But Paul is a model for me. And when I say I want to pray like Paul, it's because I learned something just, just listening to what he prayed for and how he prayed. Because I know that so many of us can get caught in, in the trap 
of just kind of thinking that prayer is a way to, to ask God for things and, and to have God uh, bring certain outcomes that we have in mind. Prayer is really just kind of directing God sometimes, if we were totally honest. God, this is what the way I need for it to be. And this, I'm sure you must see it the same way. But Paul doesn't pray like that. When Paul thinks about them and he says, I, 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 I've heard about your faith in Jesus. I've heard about how much you love God's people. And so I've never stopped giving thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Revelation is another way of, of uh, you could use the word understanding or discernment. But wisdom and revelation and why he prays this is so important. It's not just so that you would have wisdom, and wisdom, we need wisdom. Wisdom is simply knowing how to live life well, having the skills for life. And revelation is discerning where God is in all things and being able to make wise choices. So it's a good thing to have it because I think of what Robert Frost said about, he, says, he said, how many things have to happen before something occurs to you? So we need revelation. We need to be able to see when God is trying to say something, when God's trying to get our attention, because you know God keeps not tapping on our shoulder one way or another, and we're just kind of not even being aware of it. But when we have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, we will, we will just have a greater sense of God's presence with us. And that's why I love Paul and the way he prays, because of the two words that come right after that. And you'll often see these words, and not just from Paul, but from many prayers in the Bible, not every single one of them, but many of them. I pray that he gives you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. The so that is the hinge of prayer that makes you understand why you're praying it and why it's important. And for Paul, everything really was not just for the sake, not just so you can have wisdom, not just so you can have discernment, but because through your wisdom and through the discernment that God would give you, you would get to know him better. It was all for relational purposes. And so when we pray, and, and it's, I still find it very hard to be, to be mindful of and to incorporate in my own prayers, but I, I keep learning with the Apostle Paul that when I pray and ask God and talk to him about things, and I like talking to him about things more than asking him for things, because I don't really know what God's will is and what God's purposes are and what's supposed to happen and what isn't. So I can tell him what I'd like and all of that, but in the end, I just do better when I just talk to him about what's going on in life. And, and when I do that, somehow God does reveal his heart to me 
And he does it often through scripture, but he'll do it through just impressions in my spirit. He'll do it through something somebody will say or something that something will happen. But it's all so that. What's your so that in your prayer? What's your so that in your intercession when you're praying for others? Yes, we pray for the sick to get healed so that they would know him better. And we pray for, for the destitute and the needy to have what they need and to have roofs over their head and heat in the winter. But we don't just stop it there. It's so that they could know him better. So that through God's love and provisions, he reveals so much of himself and we get to know him better. It's all about relationship. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. So he already affirmed them for their faith in Jesus and their love for others. And we know that in another place, Paul wrote all about what love was and what love was not. And in that, he ended it by saying, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And you'll often see this cluster of this, this trinity of words together in the scriptures. Faith, hope, and love. They're kind of scattered close to each other. And here, what Paul knows about the saints in Ephesus is this. You're doing really great in your faith in Jesus. You're doing really great in loving his people but you need more hope. You need more hope. And so I'm praying. I'm praying that you'll have more wisdom and more revelation, more understanding, more discernment so that you may know him better and when you know him better, you will have more hope. And in that hope, you will know the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. God has God has lavished his rich grace on all of us and he promises that there's even more. And just as the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Spirit was fulfilled, so will this be fulfilled and we need hope. Hope is a confidence that the future is going to be better. The future is going to be okay. Things are going to be well. It's a confidence in a preferred future. In... In the Passion Translation, I like the way the translator puts this whole section. I'm just going to read two verses, 17 and 18. He says, I pray that the Father of glory, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, would impart to you the riches of the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation or discovery to know him through your deepening intimacy with him. I pray that the light of God will illuminate the eyes of your imagination the eyes of your innermost heart flooding you with light until you experience the full revelation of the hope of his calling. That is the wealth of God's glorious inheritance that he finds in us, his holy ones, until you find hope, the full revelation of his hope that he has for you. Richard Rohr says this about hope. He says, the theological virtue of hope is the patient and trustful willingness 
to live without closure, without resolution, and still be content and even happy because our satisfaction is now at another level and our source is beyond ourselves. I love that definition of hope and that understanding of hope as a virtue. That means not everything in life is always going to give you the closure or the resolution that you would like. Even if it's a resolution we don't like, sometimes we just feel better knowing, oh, at least I know why this happened. Or at least, at least we were able to, to close this chapter so nice and neatly. And some chapters just kind of hang there. And they don't have that, that absolute closure. And there are some things that will never be fully resolved for us. That's hope. That's hope knowing that, that God is God, whether I know what's going on or not, and whether I get the comfort of closure, because it really does tend to make us feel better, but I also think it can be an expectation that can really keep us in despair and lacking the hope and the confidence in a better tomorrow, even if the things that I hope to, to, to happen for resolution and closure of a chapter doesn't quite appear. There's an interesting phrase that, that caught my attention by this author, Ruth Burroughs, luminous darkness. And I thought, how are those two words? How do they go together? Luminous darkness. And she says, it's that place where God shows us something more about himself when we are empty of ourself. And that's what it means to get to know God better. Even in darkness, his light can shine and the, and the eyes of our hearts can be enlightened. Even in dark situations, God can reveal things to us. And as we know in the Psalms say that with, with him, that even the darkness is light. How do you have both light and darkness? How do you have hope? when you're really feeling despair. We need a hope that is, that is tangible. We need a hope that we can, that we can hold sometimes. And, it's, and, it's, and it's, we know it's really not something that we can always touch ourselves and have. There's this story of during World War II of, of this orphanage because all these children were left without their parents from the war. And they were so traumatized. And they would, they would be promised food every day. They would, there would at least be bread. And at night, the children would often be very anxious. And they would say, what if there's no bread tomorrow? What if there's no more? And there was nothing that they could say, the adults there could say, to make some of them feel better, to give them the assurance, no, we had bread today. We're going to have bread tomorrow. It's going to be okay. Until somebody got the great idea to say, what if each night we just gave them a little, just a little piece of bread to hold in their hands so that they would know there would be bread in the morning. And they learned to sleep with bread. They learned to sleep 
in peace because of the hope that they were holding in their hands that they could even chew on, knowing that there will be bread in the morning, and there always was for them. We need that kind of way that we can sleep with hope, uh, an assurance that even when things don't have the outcome that I would, I would necessarily expect or desire, that God is still God and he can illuminate the eyes of our hearts and our imagination in order to, to see the hope that he extends to us and offers us. But again, that's just part of knowing him better, isn't it? Another person who taught me about prayer and continues to teach me is someone called St. Ignatius of Loyola from 500 years ago. And he taught so much about knowing Jesus and about discernment. And the reason that he and, and his prayers helped me so much is because he just was so curious about God. He always wanted to know a little more about him. And when I say about him, it was in a relational way, a relational way. And so he would often pray, Jesus, what is it that you want me to know about you today so that I may know you more intimately, love you more intensely, and follow you more closely? I love that Ignatius had that hinge. He knew the so that. What do you want me to know about you today? Not just so I can seem more spiritual. <laughs> Not just so I can get an edge on anything or anybody. What do you want me to know about you? And that's why we can pray that in the morning along with the requests that maybe we have and people ask us for, to pray for them and they ask us to pray for a health issue. They ask us to pray for a marriage issue, a family issue, a financial need. And we have to remember and do that and pray. But what if we added at the end, Lord, help them fill their need, meet their need that they have and heal that marriage so that they will know you better. And heal them, Lord. Help them to get better and to, and, to, and to have restored health. And don't stop there. So that they will know you better. The so that can totally transform our prayer lives. And what if we in the morning could just turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, what would you want me to know about you today? so that I can know you more intimately, so that I can love you more intensely, so that I can follow you more closely. He knew why he wanted to know more about God. It wasn't the heady stuff he wanted to know. It was the person of Jesus. It was the relational connection. I want to know you just like you know, the Apostle Paul, the reason he can, he can pray that people would know him better is because it was the very cry of his own heart when he said, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. 
I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. He wanted to know everything, God, in his sufferings, in his, his death, in his resurrection, the good and the bad, the triumphant and, and, and the difficult, the tragedies, the death part. I want to know you, God. I want to know you. And that was his prayer for himself. It was his prayer for everyone else. Many of us go through life like those children kind of living in the, in, in the rubble from the war. And there's another situation where there's a, uh, the Jesuit movement came out of Ignatius of Loyola. And there was a Jesuit priest, Karl Rahner, from Germany. He was German and he, and he was preaching Lent sermons in a rubbled over church, in a church that had been blown in so many ways, and there's just heaps of rubble all around. And they, they didn't wait to rebuild the church. He's standing in that heap of rubble, and he is speaking to his congregation. And he says, and after he says this, he leads them into uh, a very personalized way of praying the Lord's Prayer. He says, if we people of today would only try to accept ourselves as we are, to look at our disguised or acknowledged despair, if we, as it were, descended into the depths of our hearts, if we gave up deceiving ourselves about ourselves, if we had the courage to renounce inwardly what life takes away from us anyway, namely everything, if we suddenly would notice after giving up everything that we possess everything, would notice that he actually is totally with us right now, Remember where he's preaching from in a, in, a, in a heap of rubble that was once a church structure. We would possess everything, would notice that he actually is totally with us right now, the silent, nameless, incomprehensible one who is everything. If we would then notice in the loneliness of our rubbled over heart that this poor heart bears infinity within itself, if we would begin to speak softly, our Father, you are in heaven, in the heaven of my heart, even when it seems to be a hell. Hallowed be your name. May it be called upon in the deadly stillness of my perplexed silence. To us come your kingdom when all abandons us. Your will be done, even if it kills us because it is life. And what seems like a setting on earth is the rising of your life in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Let us ask for this also, that we never mistake ourselves for you, not even in the hour when you are near us, rather at least by our hunger, we notice that we are poor and unimportant creatures, Free us from our guilt and protect us from the temptation of guilt and trial that is actually only one, not believing in you and the incomprehensibility of your love, but deliver us 
Deliver us from ourselves, deliver us unto you, deliver us into your freedom and into your life. What a beautiful, beautiful prayer. He wasn't trying to just retranslate the Lord's Prayer. He was, he was personalizing it to their situation, and they were standing in a heap of rubble, and he knew that that's what the, the, the condition of their hearts were. I love this time of year, and I love the Thanksgiving. You've decorated the church so nice for Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. And then we're going to start in, into Advent and Christmas. And one of my favorite Christmas songs is O Holy Night. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul found its worth. I know that last week, Pastor Jeff preached and asked, how much is your soul worth? Do you know the value of your soul? Many of us simply don't. Many of us who are living in a place of a, of a rubbled over life and a rubbled over heart, we don't know. We don't know how much our soul is worth until he appears. That's when our soul feels its worth. You want to know how much, how, how much your soul is worth? Be with Jesus. Let him appear to you and you will know how much you are worth to him. So much that he gave his life for you. There's so many stories in the Bible, if you read it with this way of, of just seeing people, so many stories, especially in the Gospels, of, of people living with rubbled over lives and rubbled over hearts. And the woman that I think of uh, that, that fits this description so well is the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And she was brought out alone and shamed and disgraced and ready to be stoned by these men. And it's kind of funny that she was there alone for the, being caught in the act of adultery. Where was the other person? Uh, but it was her and she was all alone. And there is Jesus and he's trying, they're trying to test Jesus about this. Try to put him in a precarious place. And Jesus... Man, he just talked about wisdom and revelation. He does something that just seems so odd in that situation. He doesn't panic. He kind of gets down low on the ground, and he writes something in the ground. Nobody knows what he wrote with his finger. And so a lot of people speculate what he, what he might have written. For all we know, he could have been just doodling. <laughs> But what we do know, we don't know what he wrote, but we do know that he got right down to that woman's level. Right down there. And then he said, so, tell you what, you can stone her, fulfill the law, but let the one without sin be the first one to throw that stone. And one by one, 
If that was the criteria, who could throw the stone? And one by one, they had to throw their stone down and walk away. And that's when Jesus looks at the woman and says, who is left here to condemn you, woman? And she says, no one. And he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And by saying no and go and sin no more, he was not in any way shaming her. He was not in any way trying to moralize the situation. He was helping her to realize who she was and who she was meant to be. Howard Thurman wrote about this woman and he said, Jesus met the woman where she was and he treated her as if she were already where she now willed to be, where she wished, in other words, where she was in life. And that's the thing about enlightening the eyes of our heart is to see that God's heart is that you often say, how can God forgive me for what I've done? How can he forgive my sin? And, and by the way, I am so glad, Pastor Jeff, that you made amends for the stealing of that French fry. <laughs> because, man, I was like, this is serious, you know? But then again, who can resist a French fry, right? <laughs> He's only human. Adultery and stealing French fries, it, I don't know. But God sees us not just in our sin. He sees us fully restored. He sees us in the, his likeness and image. He sees where we can be. And so in dealing with her, Thurman says, he believed her by believing in her. He believed her into the fulfillment of her possibilities that you can actually live a life like this. You can live a life, a different kind of life. He stirred her confidence into activity. Go and sin no more. He placed, he placed a crown over her head, which for the rest of her life, she would keep trying to grow tall enough to wear. And I just Love that, because that sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? And that's the Jesus that I want to know even more. I want to love him more. That's all. What else can you say? I, I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to talk to him just more. I want more of him because you know the psalms say psalm 103 that he crowns us god crowns us with compassion and mercy love and love compassion and mercy I, I i see this image as if no matter what you've ever done and wherever you've been it's as if jesus is there standing with a crown over all of our heads just 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 praying for us knowing that we can grow tall enough to wear that crown. And Jesus does pray for you. The Bible tells us he lives to intercede for us. When Simon Peter said he would die for Jesus, Jesus said, no, you won't. 
You're actually going to deny me three times before the cock crows. But, Simon Peter, Satan has, Satan has wanted to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Amen. So, we can talk about our prayer life. What about his prayer life? And you know what is a beautiful prayer and a beautiful way to pray? And you often, to really, to really get into this, it's really great to go away on a retreat, but it's if you just say, Jesus, what is your prayer for me right now? What are you praying for? And over time, God will reveal to us what's in his heart for us and what particular crown he wants to see us grow up tall enough to wear. And he's praying that every one of us will do that, especially if we are caught and trapped in sin. And that's what sin is like. It's not caught as if, as if uh, you know, somebody catches you. It's caught as if, man, I opened this door and I had no idea what was going to lunge out at me. And now I can't seem to close that door because sin, sin kind of just gets a hold and can, you just feel trapped in it. Jesus sees what every single one of us get caught in, trapped in, stuck in. And he looks at us and says, I know you're more than this. I created you for more than this. And he prays as he holds that crown. And I think he wants to instill in all of us that hope that he left that woman who was not condemned by anyone, especially him, that she could live a whole different life. It's a beautiful image. You can, you can, there's a long list. I think he did that for the lepers when he healed the lepers that no one else would touch. When Jesus healed a leper, he, he touched the leper. And another time he didn't because it wasn't important, but... Can you imagine lepers? They were never touched by anybody. They weren't any, they come around, people just go, leper, leper, don't go near, stay away. They were everything about this. He, what Jesus does is when he forgives and heals, he brings them into community. And that's what he did for this woman. And that's what he did for the man who was lame at the pool. And now he, he gave him the chance to be part of community and and when, when the man was blind, he runs into him at the, at the temple. He's, he's there at the temple. He's, he's now part of community. Check it out. And God does not want you to be isolated in your sin or in your fears or in anything else. But he calls us out and he calls us tall and he calls us in and he invites us. So let's bow our heads and pray together. Oh Jesus, we thank you for your hope that because of you, we can know the true worth of our soul. 
we can feel just like this woman. When you appeared, she felt her soul's worth, that she mattered. She mattered to you. And she came with a rubbled over heart, and you, you gave her a vision of herself that was different, that was better. It was everything that she really desired. And so, God, we thank you that we can only know the infinite worth of our own soul when we come to know the surpassing worth of the one who made it, to know Jesus. And so, Lord, we don't want to just pray because we should or have to or supposed to because we're Christians. We want to pray because we're your children and we get to. We get to talk to you. And I just invite you all here this morning to just talk to God about whatever you need to talk to him about. Right now. Where are you? And let him come to you and you will feel your soul's worth. So I'm, I'm leaving asking the question, so what is your so that? What is your so that? May you go this week and may you be with Jesus. May you be with Jesus so that you will know him better and there find hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Greet one another in Christ's name.